Good morning. The scripture on the first Sunday in Advent comes from the first chapter of Luke. You can find it in your pew Bible on page 831. It starts at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will be holy, and he will be called Son of God. And now, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her, who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here am I the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. My name is Rob Lau. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're just joining us online, I want you to know you just missed a tremendous act of heroism. You see, my friend Alan, the director of worship, was being assaulted by, I don't know what kind of a wasp it was, but I think it was a devil wasp. And and without any regard to my own personal safety, I ran up here and I slew the beast. And uh, I kind of feel like a Marine right now. So, did you go to Paris Island? Nope. Killed a devil wasp. It's same, I feel like it's same, same. Greater love, Alan. Greater love has no one than this to lay down his life for his friends. So, uh, at any rate, I'll stop being silly right now, but... uh, uh, we're glad that you all are here today. Thank you for being with us on a very important day because today is the beginning of a new year. And you might say to yourself, whoa, whoa, you're a month early. But I'm not talking about the calendar year, of course. Today is the beginning of the new Christian year. Our calendars have four seasons, winter, spring, summer, and fall. Our Christian year has six seasons, and the first season of the Christian year is the season of Advent. Advent is from a Latin word, adventi. It means to come near or to come towards. It's during the season of Advent we prepare for the coming near of the Christ child. The season of Advent is is followed by a season of celebration, For Christmas. In fact, Christmas has 12 days. That's how long the season of Christmas lasts. There's a song about it, after all. 
After the season of Christmas comes the season of Epiphany. It's a time of education. Epiphany means an unveiling. During the season of Epiphany, the the mission of Christ is unveiled. And so if you put all that together, you have a season of preparation, a season of celebration, and a season of education. And then we do the whole thing over again. Starting in Lent, we prepare to go with Christ towards the cross. At Easter, we celebrate that death has died, and then comes Pentecost, when we are educated and and commissioned to go forth and do the work of the church of Jesus Christ, because Pentecost is the birthday of the church. Preparation, celebration, education. That's how our year is structured, and today we begin a new year, a new season of preparation. And as, as we begin... I want to name something that is is just, it is true. Friends, we have heard this story before. Yes? We are familiar with this story. We know about Mary and we know about Joseph and the wise men and the shepherds. We know about this stuff. And if we're not careful, one of the things that can happen when we've heard a story before is we can think this story has nothing left to offer me. But this year... We're going to approach this series, this this Advent time, this time of preparation, we're going to approach it from, I think, a relatively unique perspective. You see, we've understood some of the characters and some of the movements, but I think that there is something rich in this story that perhaps has remained unaccessed for us, and it's around the setting. Why was it important that Mary was from the town of Nazareth? Why was it important that Joseph was from the town of Bethlehem? Elizabeth's, Elizabeth is the cousin of Mary, the mother of John the Baptist. She was from a little-known town called Ein Karim. Why is that important? Over the course of these next few weeks, we're going to make this journey towards the birth of the Savior again. And as we do so, we're going to explore new characters along the way in the form of the setting. All of, a, all of this to prepare our hearts once again. Because the king is coming. So, if we're going to pay attention to some of the geographical realities of Israel, I wanted to start out by giving you a big picture of Israel. So this is a map of the nation of Israel. Israel is dominated by two fairly significant bodies of water. In the south is the Dead Sea. Now, if you stand on the banks of the Dead Sea, you are standing at the lowest point where has, that has dry land on the planet. It's the lowest point where there's dry land on the planet. In fact, I've been there, and one of the things Andy and I saw while we were there is that there's a bar called the lowest bar in the world. It is. And I thought about Garth Brooks and his song, I've got friends in low place. And I thought, man, this is the place he should have filmed this music video. The lowest bar in the world. I don't think he did that, though. So the Dead Sea is there. It dominates the southern portion of Israel. If you were to look at the northern edge of the Dead Sea, just west is the city of Jerusalem. And then if you look at the northern portion of the map, you'll find the Sea of Galilee. Sometimes the Sea of Galilee is also called Lake Genesaret or Lake Tiberias, but you will see it often in Scripture. And connecting those two bodies of water, the Sea of Galilee in the north and the Dead Sea in the south, there is a river. What's that river called? The Jordan River connects the Galilee, Sea of Galilee in the north to the Dead Sea in the south. Today, I want to focus mostly on the northern region called Galilee. So I want to show you a map of Galilee. This is a map of Galilee and some of the important towns around Galilee. And if you look just north of the Sea of Galilee, you see a town called Capernaum. 
Capernaum in Hebrew is actually the, the word Kafar Nahum, which means the town of Nahum. This is where the prophet Nahum came from. It's also worth noting that here in the town of Capernaum is also where the apostle Peter lived. This is the, the basis for two of the three years that Jesus was in ministry. His, his base of ministry was in the town of Capernaum. My point in telling you this is to know that there are some towns in Galilee that have a rich and storied history. Nazareth is not one of them. Nazareth was, Nazareth came into being about a hundred years before the Annunciation, which is what's what it's called when Mary receives uh, the, the the angel Gabriel and and he announces to her that he that she's going to have a baby, the Annunciation. About a hundred years before the Annunciation is when Nazareth started to creep up. And at the time that Mary received her visit from Gabriel, there were about two hundred and fifty people in the town of Nazareth. As is so often the case. Uh, folks in Nazareth built their city around a, a well, a spring, in fact. Uh, Nazareth was so small, by the way, that, that historians omitted it from their lists. The, the, the Hebrew Talmud is a, a historic document, and it talks about all the towns in the region of Galilee. It never mentions Nazareth. The, the Jewish historian Josephus in the first century lists about 46 different towns from Galilee. Galilee. He never mentions Nazareth. It was an itty-bitty town, and it sprang up around a spring. A spring that, that you still could visit today. It's often the case that desert towns will come up around a spring, and this is, this is that spring. Our Greek Orthodox brothers and sisters believe that it was around this spring that Mary received the visit from Gabriel. This spring right here you can see that water is still flowing into the spring. It, it is worth noting that our ancient brothers and sisters, when they, when, in the Near East, when they talked about water that flowed like this spring water flows, they called that kind of flowing water living water. You may remember that in John chapter 4, Jesus encounters a woman in Samaria, a woman who'd had a very rough life. And Jesus asks her for a drink and she says, don't you know we're not supposed to talk to each other? And Jesus said, but if you knew who I was, you would ask me and I would give you what? Living water and you would never thirst again. I just think it's interesting to note that the first time that the purveyor of living water to the world ever encountered living water almost certainly was right there at that spring. The people in Nazareth were poor. In fact, they often lived in caves, limestone caves. To this day, people in Nazareth, many of them still live in caves. And limestone's interesting because as as stone goes, it's relatively soft. It's easy to form. And so people can, can dig out extra rooms in their houses. They can dig a shaft for light to come through. To this day, people still live in limestone caves. And most of the Christians in the world, including the Roman Catholic Church, believe that it was it was in a cave in Bethlehem, that that's where Mary actually encountered Gabriel. Not the spring, but the cave. The Roman Catholic Church, you're never going to guess what they did around this cave. They built a church around it. Yeah, everything in the in, in over there has a church built around it. I want to show you a picture of the cave. So there it is. And uh, I've been here. I just 
I just want to communicate something I think that's, that's really very interesting about, about being there um, at the Basilica of the Annunciation. I agree that it's most likely that I think this is where Gabriel actually came to Mary. And it's really powerful to find yourself standing in this place and recognize that this is the first time. This is where it happened. The first time that any human being had ever conceived that God would put on flesh. For the first time, it was right there. It was powerful. It was powerful to see that this is the place where the world truly started to change for all of us. Because Nazareth was a small town and because the people who lived there were poor, many folks from Nazareth commuted to a town called Sepphoris about three miles away, 3.7 miles from Bethlehem is where Sepphoris is. And Sepphoris was a really, really big town. And in the ancient Near East, most people walked. And so to walk about 3.7 miles to the big town of Sepphoris that had its 30,000 people, it would take you, which was, again, a very big town for the ancient Near East, it took people about an hour to commute to the big city for work. Does that sound familiar to anyone? (laughs) It should. And many of you do that every single day. I I wanted to show you a picture of some of the things that happened in Sepphoris because these people were wealthy. And so here's some tile floors from from the town of Sepphoris that still exists to this day. And so people from Nazareth would often travel to Sepphoris and they would do uh, menial work there. They would do domestic work there. My point is to say it's quite possible that Mary and her family were engaged in service to wealthy families in the town of Sepphoris, perhaps cleaning floors just like these. Until a fateful day. I also want to point out that 10 miles from Nazareth was a very large military base just outside the town of Megiddo. So if somebody were to ask you, where do you live? And you said, oh, I live in Stafford, Virginia. Better part of the time, they're going to look at you with a blank look on your face. Where is Stafford, Virginia? How would you answer that question? Some of you might say, I live an hour south of Washington, D.C. Others of us might say, I live 10 miles away from Quantico. Now, I love living in this town. I love this community. Andy and I have found a home here. But I think it's probably fair to say that Stafford lives in the shadow of some larger communities and institutions Close by, Nazareth would have felt the same way. In fact, the word Nazareth comes from a Hebrew word, Netzer. And the word Netzer in Hebrew means a branch or a shoot or a weed. Nazareth quite literally was a little weed of a town. But it reminds me of a passage of scripture, a prophecy from Isaiah 11. Listen to this. A shoot shall come forth from the stump of Jesse. A branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. The spirit of wisdom, understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. 
The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. Poor people living in caves, huddled around a spring in the desert, Commuting an hour to get to work, they were overshadowed by the important city of Sepphoris and the military installation not far away. It begs the question, why would God choose this place? Why would God choose this little weed of a town? But if you think about it, Against the backdrop of our greater story of salvation, if you really think about it, this is what God does. Let's say that we found ourselves as a human race, as a church, we're in crisis. And we have to decide, we've got to pick some people to have babies for us. I know that sounds weird, but go with me for a second, okay? (laughs) What kind of people would we pick? Probably the young Virile, healthy, strong. When God wanted a new family, who did God pick? Abraham, who was a hundred, and Sarah, who was ninety. If we wanted to start a brand new culture, where would we go to find people to help us start this new culture? We might go to one of the cultural centers of the world, and that's exactly what God did in the Old Testament. God went to the cultural center of the world. God went to Egypt. And when God got to Egypt, did God pick the wealthy and the educated and the powerful? No. Who did God pick to be his people? He picked the slaves. When God wanted a king, did he pick the tall and the powerful and the strong? No, he picked a 12-year-old shepherd boy. And when the moment came for God to split time in half, when it came time for God to meet our greatest anxiety with God's greatest act of love, to conquer death and fear and hell and sin, Where did God look to begin the greatest chapter in the story of human history? God looked to a little weed of a town, unnoticed by history and overshadowed by the communities nearby. Because, my brothers and sisters, God is in the habit of choosing the overshadowed and the underwhelming. God takes the old and the too young. God takes the enslaved and the weak and the anxious and the depressed and the afraid. God takes people who look like us from places that look like this and uses those people to change the world. If we are willing, that is. Because the town was important. But so too was the girl. Mary was about 13 when she was visited by Gabriel, and that might strike some of our modern sensibilities as odd. Thirteen's awfully young to have a baby, but in the ancient Near East, where life expectancy was somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 years, young women became uh, betrothed following their first menstrual cycle. And after a year-long engagement, there was a a wedding ceremony, and then the wedding was consummated. And 
young ladies were expected to have about a child a year throughout their childbearing years. That's the way it worked. So here's this 13-year-old girl, and if I'm being honest with you, this is where the most amazing part of the story comes up for me. Because the most amazing part of the story for me isn't that God was able to become flesh. God is God. God can do whatever God wants to do. What really amazes me is the conversation between a 13-year-old girl and the angel Gabriel. You, you've seen encounters in the Bible with angels before. What's the first thing they always say? Do not be afraid. Which means these are not fat little baby angels swinging around up here, right? These are terrifying creatures. This terrifying creature shows up and tells this 13-year-old girl what's going to happen. And what amazes me is that a 13-year-old girl would say, Here I am. Let it be with me according to your word. A 13-year-old child, she said yes. She said yes, even though she knew that being found pregnant while she was engaged to a man was a capital offense and could result in death by stoning. She said yes. She said yes. Even though she could have died in childbirth, she said yes. Even though it almost certainly would cost her a husband, she said yes. Even though that wedding day she dreamed about wasn't going to look the way she always dreamed it would, Mary said yes. There's a a guy by the name of Pastor Christian Kuhn, and he wrote an article in Christian Century a few years ago. He was telling a story about this this experience where he he called all the kids in his church together uh, because they they were going to put on this Christmas play. So he got all the kids together and he asked, "Okay, uh, uh, you know, who wants to be a camel?" And like half the boys raised their hands; they wanted to be camels. And who wants to be a cow? And some of the kids raised their hand; they wanted to be cows. And who wants to be Joseph? Nobody wanted to be Joseph. And then he said, "Who wants to be Mary?" And every little girl in the room raised her hand. I want to be Mary. I want to be Mary. I want to be Mary. And in this prophetic moment, Pastor Christian Kuhn raised the question. He said, I wonder if Mary wanted to be Mary. Mary, Mary keeps getting called blessed in this story. But her life was hard because of what the angel asked her to do. She had to endure tremendous sorrow. She gave up her reputation. She risked her marriage. She agreed to bear God's child to a world that ultimately would kill him. And you have to wonder if when Gabriel came to Mary that day, if Gabriel had given her the full view of everything that was going to happen in her life, you have to wonder if Mary still would have said, here I am. If Gabriel had let her see past her life, if Gabriel would let her see that there's no group of people in the history of the world who have raised more orphans, who have opened more hospitals and healed more sick people, There's no group of people in the world who have fed the hungry and clothed the naked and housed the homeless. No group of people in the world more so than the followers of her son. That these people were going to change this earth. Perhaps 
Mary would have said the suffering was worth it. And the question for us today is, would we be willing to say the same? Would we be willing to say to God, God, I have dreams and plans and aspirations. I know how I would like my life to turn out, but I, I'm willing, I'm willing to let you guide my future, God. Because the blessing and favor of God is no easy road and we shouldn't expect it to be. But I wonder, what would we be willing to agree to? What suffering would we endure? What would we be willing to agree to if it meant the transformation of the world? Ten miles from a military base, in the shadow of a much bigger town, 2,000 years ago, God called an ordinary human being to be the vessel through which Christ would enter the world. And still today, I would suggest ten miles from a big, big military base and in the shadow of a much bigger town, God continues to call ordinary people to bear Christ to the earth. I told you last year that early theologians came up with a name for Mary. They called her the Theotokos. It means the God-bearer. God called this child to bear Christ to the world. And nothing was ever the same. Brothers and sisters, God still calls. God still calls the overshadowed and the underwhelming. God still calls the normal and the ordinary, the too old and the too young. God still calls people like you and me from places like this to bear Christ to the world. I don't have a list of takeaways for us today. I don't have five keys to whatever or three steps to that thing over there. Just one takeaway. I wonder if we might take our inspiration this morning from a 13-year-old girl from a little weed of a town. I wonder if, like Mary, we might be willing to say to God, I want to help bear Christ to this world. And I know the road is going to be hard. And I know it may cost me some of my dreams, but I'm willing to trust you, God, because I believe that your future is a greater future than any future of which I could conceive. Nazareth. It was just a little weed of a town. Isn't it amazing? What God does through the ordinary. Would you pray with me, church? Holy God, I thank you that you continue to build this world and your kingdom through the overshadowed and the underwhelming. I thank you that you sent Jesus Christ when we needed him most. And I pray in this, this new season of our lives that you would help those of us who believe in your Son to be bearers of Christ to the world. I pray you would help us to become the Theotokos. Help us to know beyond doubt that you've called us, even us, to bear Jesus to the earth. 
But God, I also want to pray today in this day of new beginnings. I want to pray for those in this room who perhaps don't know you, who don't trust in you. I ask that you would help them to understand the truth that you love the world so much that you held nothing back. You sent your son, your only son, and in his chosen vulnerability, he suffered and died. He destroyed death so we could have new and abundant life. And if there are people in this room who do not trust and rest in Christ this day, pray they could enjoy a new beginning to their soul at the beginning of this new Christian year. By praying in the silence of their hearts, a simple prayer like this one. Heavenly Father, I have made so many mistakes. I've hurt others. I've hurt myself. And I've hurt you. Forgive me. Today I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. Today I put all of my trust in His grace. And as this new year begins, I promise to serve Him as long as I have breath. In Jesus' name. Amen.